0: What do you think life would be like if there were no men? Today's book, written in 1915, asks this question and provides one possible answer that might surprise you. Please note that this episode will discuss themes of sex, assault, and relationships that are not suitable for everyone. Though not graphic, these topics may disturb some listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast. This is your portal into science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Whether they're too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie, we cover them here. I'm your host, Erica Brickley. Check out my Instagram to see what books we might cover in the future. At Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A, B as in boy, R-I-C-K-L-E-Y. Follow, subscribe, like, comment, etc. This is the Classics Episode. Today's book is called Her Land, a lost feminist utopian novel by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, author of The Yellow Wallpaper. I picked up a copy at the Planned Parenthood book sale held twice a year in Des Moines, Iowa, It takes over the 4-H building at the fairgrounds and fills the hall with dozens of tables loaded with used books, tapes, records, games, and artwork. It's a reader's heaven. Today's book is a paperback with an interesting texture to the cover that paired with an unusual image made me decide to take it home. Before we begin, I want to quickly say that I did not write this episode to make sweeping statements about men and women. I believe that true feminists recognize that all people Men, women, white, black, and on down the spectrum of life that society so often tries to fit into a binary, deserve to live a life without oppression. This is not reality for most, if any, of us. We all live within the larger sphere of interpersonal and intercultural influence that is the human experience. There will always be someone somewhere in the world who is unhappy with how you choose to wear clothes, work for your daily bread, worship in the privacy of your own home. To be a feminist is to recognize that women have minds, aspirations, and desires equal to those of men, and by extension this is true of every single person, including those same men who have been pounded into shape by society. Women can go to prison and fight in wars. Men can wear soft fabrics and enjoy parenting. Really, if I was going to list every single thing that every single human is capable of, even when their life is threatened for simply being born with labia or having more melatonin in their skin, we would be here all day. Let's just keep things easy and remember that I, Erica Brickley, believe that being a real feminist means fighting for everyone to have their day in the sun. That being said, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's novel is focused solely on men and women. Keep in mind that this book was written five years before women had the right to vote in the United States, and as a suffragette, this is where her focus was. This book is held up as a utopian vision of the future for generations to come. In many ways, Gilman lived a typical life of a turn-of-the-century woman, getting married, having children, and struggling with postpartum mental illness at a time when women were dismissed as being hysterical. She was unusual for divorcing her husband and remarrying, although it seems she was in a romantic relationship with her female best friend at one point. She later divorced her second husband, although she eventually sent her daughter to live with him because she believed he was still a good man and parent, alongside his new wife. Gilman married a third time and stayed with him until his passing. After years of work as a women's rights advocate in California, Gilman was diagnosed with terminal cancer and chose to take her own life, believing for herself and others that one should have the choice to die rather than live through a terrible disease. It's really interesting reading about Gilman's accomplishments now since I've already read the book. Although she believed that home life and motherhood oppressed women via the patriarchy, Herland doesn't completely throw out this structure. Rather, it flips the negatives on their head. But we'll get into that later during the discussion. As I said, my copy of Herland is printed on textured paper, though the inner pages are normal. This is the Pantheon Books edition with a 1978 introduction by Anne J. Lane. The cover features a collage made by Joan Hall, with further design coordinated by Louise Philly. On a background of grass and plants, four women with 1800s style collars and hair emerge from the leaves, black and white in stark contrast to the greenery. At the bottom of the image, a single naked man sits with his head resting on his knees, very small by comparison. Without further ado, let's get started. Chapter 1. A Not Unnatural Enterprise This is the first-hand account of Van Dyke Jennings, who went on an adventure to a mysterious country with his two school friends, Jeff Margrave and Terry O. Nicholson. They are three very different men with one common interest—science. Terry is the driving force, an explorer at heart, born rich and eager to see the whole world. Quote, We never would have done the thing at all without Terry. Unquote. His primary interests are mechanics and electricity. Jeff is described as a poet and a botanist, though a doctor by profession. His hobby is what he calls the mysteries of science. And Van, our narrator, is a sociologist. The three of them have the opportunity to go on a scientific expedition, Jeff as the doctor, Terry as a mechanic and funder, and Van as a tag-along. Van begins listening to the other crew members in various languages discussing folk tales and legends, including stories of a woman land, where only women and girl children live. They are very near where it sits up the river from the expedition, but maybe only one man has ever gone and come back with stories. At first, the boys just laugh at the idea, but they hear stories that make them think some valuable things like cinnabar and indigo might be in the same direction. They take a break from the expedition to have a look, hiking down three hours with Terry at the lead. Suddenly, they come to a place where they can see a sudden mountain range pop up. At the base, they see fabric dye in a pool from a waterfall, along with a rag made of cloth too advanced and well-made for it to come from the surrounding tribes. The colors must come from the woman country beyond the mountains. They speak to a local guide, more serious now. Terry is intrigued that this place is considered dangerous for men. He proposes a new expedition. They keep this to themselves, go home with the professors they've traveled with, then come back another day on their own to see this Amazonian land. With Terry's money, that's exactly what they do. A year later, and the yacht is loaded with a small biplane, and they're off. On the way, they discuss what they'll find. Will the women eat them? Are there a bunch of men with poisoned arrows lying in wait? While Jeff imagines a paradise, quote, Blossoming with roses and babies and canaries," Van can see that Terry imagines Feminisia to be the land of wild girls waiting for a man to become their king. Van, meanwhile, believes they will find a matriarchal society and nothing more. As for the danger levels, they disagree on that too. Terry is sure the women would always be getting into catfights, incapable of inventing or improving society. Jeff thinks it would be more like a peaceful nunnery, maybe with a cloth mill since they saw evidence of that. And Van mostly watches these discussions, observing the tensions rise until it's almost an argument before he helps them simmer down. One friend is hot-headed, the other very easygoing, and they provoke each other endlessly. Van thinks this about his friends. Jeff idolized women in the best Southern style. He was full of chivalry and sentiment and all that. And he was a good boy. He lived up to his ideals. You might say Terry did too, if you can call his views about women anything so polite as ideals. I always liked Terry. He was a man's man, very much so. Generous and brave and clever. But I don't think any of us in college days was quite pleased to have him with our sisters. In short, Van knows that Terry sees pretty women as game and homely ones as invisible. And it's not a good quality of his. At the same time, Van is quietly judgmental of Jeff, too. Van thinks of himself as realistic, merely acknowledging the physical limitations of the fairer sex in a scientific way, while Jeff has on permanent rose-colored glasses that give women halos. They reach the little river they hiked before and get their biplane set up, loaded with a camera, food, guns, etc. The first trip is just to scout the edge of the steep mountain range so they can return to the boat and draw a map. They all agree that the glimpses of the country beyond looked quite civilized, broken into forests and park-like meadows. It is a beautiful, semi-tropical piece of land. The next trip, they fly over the mountains and inspect the country. There aren't any cattle in the garden-like landscapes, but they quickly find a village. People come running at the noise of the plane, and lo and behold, all the boys see are women. They can't believe that there aren't any men, and are determined to go looking for them. Terry parks the plane in the mountains and, regardless of any danger, they set off to have a better look around. After a year of talking about this place, they can't resist. Chapter 2. Rash Advances The three young men hike through the forest cautiously. Sure, they'll come across men at some point since they definitely saw children. However, they quickly notice that even this forest is a bit strange. It's carefully manicured, very tidy, better than an orchard. All of them bear some kind of fruit. The birds are oddly tame, and sometimes there are carved tables and chairs for picnicking. Suddenly, the boys hear faint (laughs) laughter. They look up into the branches of a huge tree to see people watching them. The boys climb after them, coming to a place where they are nervous to go higher, and the three figures have walked out (laughs) along the swaying boughs to watch them at a distance. At first glance, the figures are boys, their hair cut short and wearing tunics with knee breeches. But they are quite lovely, and are actually (laughs) girls laughing with delight. Although they speak their own language, Terry, Jeff, and Van manage to awkwardly introduce themselves. The girls' names are (laughs) Celis, Alima, and Elidor. One group tries to get the other to come nearer, or get down from the tree, but neither relents. So, Terry pulls out a necklace he's brought for this very occasion and offers it to Alima, a tall, strong girl whose eyes were, quote, Splendid, wide, fearless, as free from suspicion as a child's who has never been rebuked. Her interest was more that of an intent boy playing a fascinating game <laughs> than of a girl lured by an ornament, unquote. At the same time, Van doesn't like the wolfish look in Terry's eyes. However, his ploy doesn't work. She snatches the trinket and drops to a lower branch before he can react and grab her. She's followed by the other two, laughing. <laughs> The boys follow them to the ground and make chase, but the girls are like antelopes and disappear into the distance. The boys come to an open field with clean roads, across which is the village they saw earlier. The girls have already made it there. Despite losing the race, Terry is ecstatic to meet such swift, spectacular girls. Certain the men here must be very fast sprinters to catch ladies like that. They walk down the road, lined with flowers and fountains. The pavement is made of, quote... Some sort of hard manufactured stuff, sloped slightly to shed rain, unquote. It's as good as anything back home, and Terry is sure the country's men built it. As they approach the village, Jeff comments on the beauty of the buildings. Quote, This place was built mostly of a sort of dull rose-colored stone, with here and there some clear white houses. And it lay abroad among the green groves and gardens like a broken rosary of pink coral, unquote. They are all amazed by how clean everything is. No smoke, no dirt, no noise. Waiting in the village square is a large group of women, and within moments the boys are surrounded on all sides. Van and Jeff feel like children who have gotten in trouble, while Terry scans the crowd and points out that everyone in sight is over 40, although Van notes that they are, quote, in the full bloom of rosy health, erect, serene, standing sure-footed and light, unquote. No one wants to shoot women who remind them of their aunties. So Terry steps forward with a smile to charm them. Hmm. He pulls out more gifts, like the necklace from before. And one by one, they are accepted and passed out of sight. The boys are thrown off guard, all three of them having only imagined young women when speaking about this country. At home, women seem to become something else, more like property, when they age. And here they are confronted with a community's older leaders, These women are not nervous, scared, uneasy, or even curious. They are a united council, observing invaders with passive calmness. Six women step forward to flank each man, and the boys go with them to a big, gray building. At Terry's urging, all three stop and try to explain things to the women with gestures. Van, who is writing this account in the future, looks back on this moment and laughs at their audacity from marching into a foreign country expecting not to have any obstacles. Quote, Jeff, with his gentle, romantic, old-fashioned notions of women as clinging vines. Terry, with his clear, decided, practical theories that there were two kinds of women, those he wanted and those he didn't. Desirable and undesirable was his demarcation. The latter as a large class, but negligible. He had never thought about them at all, unquote. The boys are terrified to go into the building and become imprisoned and continue stalling. While the women aren't stiff or frightening like soldiers, they are observant and strict as professors, athletic as fishwives, yet light on their feet. Together, the boys try to ram their way through, quote, We found ourselves much in the position of the suffragette trying to get to the Parliament buildings through a triple cordon of London police, unquote. The women are solid, strong, and don't break their formation. Overpowered, the boys are taken into the building, placed before a gray-haired judge and have their mouths covered with soaked cloths until they pass out. Chapter 3 A Peculiar Imprisonment Van wakes up in a perfectly soft bed of comfortable linens. The room is big and beautiful with high windows. All three of them are in their own beds dressed in night robes. While Jeff is quite pleased with the women's mercy Terry believes it is because they are women that they are too weak in spirit to kill them. In the next moment, they realize that they have been stripped and washed. Jeff blushes, and Terry grins wickedly, while Van is more realistic about the clinical nature of the act. All their possessions are gone, so they put on the attractive shoes left for them as well as simple comfy garments. The undergarments, tunics, and short trousers are very utilitarian, very similar to what the women wore. Now the question is, are they here as guests, deliverers, or curiosities to study? They knock on the door and it is opened to reveal a large table, benches and couches, and other seating arrangements. A total of 18 middle-aged women are there waiting for them. The boys do their best to bow respectfully, which is returned with a sort of salute. Breakfast is fruits, nuts, and little cakes with water and something like hot cocoa. At the same time, they are given books to help them learn the language and share their own. The women have no experience in learning other languages, but they are excellent, attentive teachers. The boys focus on the task earnestly, even though it becomes clear that three of the women are teachers and the rest are guard units, five per man. The teachers are Somal, Zava, and Moadin. Looking out the windows, Terry, Jeff, and Van discover they are no longer in the little pink village, having been moved to some sort of castle with a steep cliff to the river far below. They're still having a hard time believing there are no men here, perhaps subdued somewhere in the same way they are now. But it's not only that they haven't seen any men, the women don't react to them in the way women usually do, as if the fact they are men is a minor factor. Terry refuses to believe that this is for any reason besides the fact that the women in the other room are sexless old maids. Jeff and Van embrace their surroundings, learning all they can. While Terry dislikes the women's short hair, Van comes to prefer it after a while. Days are filled with study and meandering in the gardens, where Van can examine the architecture. However, after a while, he and Jeff become as gloomy about their imprisonment as Terry. The only thing they can do is become proficient speakers so they can make an argument for themselves. The language is smooth and easy with a pretty writing style. Not unlike Esperanto, while also seeming quite old, the gardens are beautiful. They are taken to the gymnasium for exercise. Quote, there are no spectacular acrobatics, such as only the young can perform, but for all around development they had a most excellent system. A good deal of music went with it, with posture dancing and sometimes gravely beautiful professional performances. Unquote. Terry is strong, Jeff is fast, and Van has stamina, but none of them can compete with the women. Van gets along well with his teacher Somol. Jeff likes to call his Miss Sava, even though the women don't use honorifics, and Terry merely tolerates Moedine. They read maps of the country and find out the women know absolutely nothing of the world beyond the mountains. They study long, pleasant hours, but Terry can't relax. He wants to get out, to fight, or to find some real girls. As expedition leader, he finally convinces Jeff and Van to break out so they can find their plane and go home, if nothing else. Using ropes made of bedclothes, the boys sneak out the window. Goodbye, Grandma, Terry whispers as they leave. Chapter 4. Our Venture The men get away from the fortress and fill their many, many pockets with nuts. They travel by night through the band of forests that hug the mountains, circling the country. All they can do is keep going and hope their plane is still where they left it. And fortune is on their side. They climb up and find it wrapped in tarps. As they work to free the flying machine, they stop when they hear girls giggling. (laughs) They look to see Celis, Alima, and Elidor, those same girls they saw on their first day in her land. Using their limited language skills, the boys explain what they are up to, and Terry pretends they are very hungry, Mm -hmm. at which point the girls toss them a package of biscuits. This begins a sort of game. While Elidor watches the boys, Celis arranges a target while Alima gathers stones for everyone to throw. The boys are worse at the game than the girls, who can knock a nut off a pile of sticks without disturbing the sticks. Finally, the girls offer up a little knife so the boys can cut the tarps off the plane, and following Terry's lead, the boys try to subdue the girls. For a moment, they are afraid, but Salis, Elima, and Elidor soon find their footing and flit away like deer. Terry, Jeff, and Van go back to the plane, sorry to be alone again. Finally, the older women arrive and take the boys away. There is no punishment, only a return to captivity, as if this were merely a bit of a game. For the first time, the boys get to ride in an electric motor vehicle, which gives them a better view of the countryside than they've seen so far. Every town is like a beautiful park, and the women come outside to see them, always kind and attentive. By evening, the boys are back in their room like nothing happened. While Van finds the whole thing quite funny, a daring escape that was really just a game, Terry is livid even as the women carefully explain that the boys are guests who are watched closely due to their initial violent outburst. Terry is also upset that the books they are given aren't more interesting, Hmm. though Van points out there aren't men in any of them to create stirring romance or wild adventure. Now that the boys' language skills are improving, they learn there have been no men in this country for 2,000 years. Terry presses the teachers for more details, though it is challenging. The women know terms like mother and birth, But there are no fathers, and they don't know what virgin means. When it is explained through farm animal relations, the teachers then ask what the male virgin is called, but Terry is stumped. The teachers admit they have been hoping visitors would come to teach this land of women and girls about the rest of the world. Although they are wise, patient, and intuitive, there are many things they don't know. They are especially curious what women are like in society that also has men. Van has a strange twinge in his stomach at the idea of describing the lives of women back home. The teachers are excited to give the boys history books and learn about theirs in turn. About a wide world of not just mothers, but mothers and fathers. So much could be achieved. Humans are different from animals, whose males are often not very useful. It turns out there used to be more animals here in Herland, but there wasn't enough space to maintain cattle, llamas, horses, and dogs long-term. Now it's mostly cats and birds. They live a vegetarian life now, with no concept of drinking cow's milk. In fact, when the boys describe the process of taking a cow's calf away and harvesting the milk, the teachers look quite shocked and excuse themselves. Chapter 5. A Unique History Life in Herland is sweet and even, with no wild adventures as the boys dreamed of when they went searching for it in their yacht and plane. The primary animals are quiet domesticated cats, sort of like women's best friend. All the birds are left alone, not even their feathers used for decorations. Terry mainly asks questions about things like this because he likes sharing stories of the lovely ladies back home, and the women here are fascinated. Here hats are only for shade and warmth, never for gaudy ornamentation. The women take notes on everything the boys communicate. Their lines of questioning are so thorough that the boys always find themselves backed into a corner, unable to go into any more detail about things they don't fully understand. On the point of cats and dogs, and many other things, they often find the tables turned. Terry assumes the male cats must be lonely, not allowed to mate and breathe all they like, and the teachers point out that the dogs back home must feel the same, since male hunting dogs are much preferred, and therefore have no female mates. On top of that, the dogs at home aren't nearly so well behaved. The women can't imagine being so negligent as to breed animals willy-nilly that might bite children, animals that cannot run free as their cats do. Everything the women of this country do is for the children. Cats are trained to be very clean and well-behaved because everything is kept clean and tidy. During the six months spent in the fortress, Van absorbed as much of this history as he could and continued listening when they were moved to a more open part of the city. Long ago, this mountain-ringed country had an open passage to the sea, where northern peoples, similar to the boy's ancestors, made their way in. These are the people who built the fortresses. A nation of men and women lived a harsh existence of war and misfortune, until a volcanic outburst caused the one mountain pass to collapse, barring the way out. The remaining men fought and killed each other, leaving a desolate country of mostly harems and girl children. If any men survived, to try and rule with cruelty, these remaining women brought them down to save themselves. Now the slave women were all that was left. All they could do was bury the dead, rebuild, and do the best they could to keep living. Nowadays they prefer cremation, since this country has very limited space for cemeteries, just like cattle, and are a bit disgusted that these Christians of the outside world insist their dead be buried, just to rot. Anyway, the slaves were hard workers and had many skills, so they worked together to create a society. Then, by some miracle, one of the women had a baby. She went to live in the Temple of Maya, the goddess of motherhood, and had five daughters in total. These mothers of the future marked the birth of a new human race, as each one had her own five daughters. Before long, there was no one alive who remembered men, and this was the new normal they lived a safe life of farming and industry, keeping careful records, quote, "...here you have human beings, unquestionably, but what we were slow in understanding was how these ultra-women, inheriting only from women, had eliminated not only certain masculine characteristics, which of course we did not look for, but so much of what we had always thought essentially feminine," unquote. This society is driven not by a need to protect themselves from anything, but a desire to self-cultivate and improve for the sake of their sisters and daughters. Terry scoffs, thinking these stories are as believable as Herodotus. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not, maybe they're partly true. He can't imagine women living together without becoming catty and jealous. More than that, he's upset that this country lacks not only the things about men he loves— competitiveness, for example, but also things about women he loves. He doesn't want mothers, he wants pretty girls. Van begins to suspect that what he and the boys previously thought of as feminine qualities were more in response to men than inherent characteristics. Here, the women pour their energy not into looking pretty, but into society as a whole. Everything—exercise, education, health, strength, intellect, goodness— is for the benefit of generations to come. Even Mother Earth is cultivated for beauty and food production. Over time, Van becomes less and less proud of his own world of men, seeing how this place has no war, no aristocracy, no priests, no inequality of any kind. He feels even worse when the women try to learn about the outside world, believing it must be far better than anything they've accomplished on their own with only one sex. A real sticking point is work. The women here love to work, to be productive. They don't need money or competition to stimulate industry. Terry tries to paint a lovely picture of women not working, staying at home to be honored and idolized, but Jeff mischievously points out that poorer women, the majority of women, do in fact work the same way men have to. Chapter 6 Comparisons Are Odious As a Californian, Van always thought he came from a wonderful country. Now, however, he feels as though an innocent, bright-eyed child is asking him questions with answers that make him feel more and more uneasy about the state of the world. He and the boys find themselves evading certain questions. Terry and Jeff assign Van, the sociologist, the task of explaining poverty to the teachers. He tries to describe a sort of natural selection worldview. The women take notes and ask if the poorer women then have fewer children, since they cannot be provided for. But Jeff explains that the opposite is true. Poor people tend to have many more children. Soon, the boys will be taken into society to teach more women about the outside world. They assume other civilizations have progressed technologically like theirs, which was proved right by the boys' plane flying overhead, but they don't know a thing about geography. Beyond the mountains is like another planet. They have instead focused on astronomy, physiology, chemistry, physics, botany, and so on. Even small children know about these topics, as everyone is educated equally and thoroughly. A globe is made, and the boys help them fill in the enormous blanks. Huge groups gather to listen to the boys' lectures, much of which is based on Van's little pocket notebook's cheat sheet pages. This is intriguing work, though a little intimidating, since everyone who comes to listen has already studied what the teachers learned and compiled from the boys during their six months. These audiences continue to be made up of middle-aged women. Terry is still upset about the state of things, though he has learned that storming around and showing bravado only amuses the women without results, and he's toned down his argument style a little. He questions his teacher Moadine, who admits the boys are here as teachers and students, and that they cannot be allowed near the young ladies for fear of harm. Terry insists he and his friends would harm no one, but Moadine points out that despite any good intentions, were they to do so, they would have a country of mothers to answer to. The boys would then be the real ones in danger. In this country, to say a person is a mother carries so much weight that the boys can't really comprehend it. Even women who have not given birth still think of themselves as mothers. The children occupy their thoughts, drive their motivations. Jeff understood a little better, already thinking of mothers as incredible heroes, but Van and especially Terry struggle with the concept. This motherhood is more persistent in this society than any godly religion. This motherly feeling is poured into spinning, weaving, gardening, carpentry, masonry, and beyond. Van learned that when the country began to fill up, to the point where they couldn't afford to give livestock space, these great cooperators did not fight, but sat down as a council to discuss the matter. They determined how many people they could sustain happily, and made sure no more children than that were born. They are conscious makers of people, not forced into childbirth, but in control of a happy population. This motherly feeling each woman had was felt towards the entire country, not just babies she had born herself. They took care of each other and every person. And even though it was hard to give up the joy of having babies, women made the sacrifice for the greater good. Van speaks with his teacher Somal for more insight, for now they are good friends. She explains that most women can give birth once, and women considered unfit can't at all. Only honored people can have more than one baby. But how, Van wonders, do women stop themselves from becoming pregnant if everyone naturally can five times? Somal is horrified by the thought of abortion, of conceiving a child that is not wanted, and Van has to avoid the subject entirely. Apologetic for her shock, Somal explains that it took a few centuries to figure out that Prior to pregnancy, women feel a sense of exultation and deep desire for a child, and they found that through work and concentration, they can defer the feeling until it passes. Caring for existing children also helps. As part of a race of humans who would each bear five babies if they could, they limit themselves to one and love all the other children as if they were their own. In this way, each woman has a million children to love. Van takes note that there is a smaller child-to-adult ratio here than back home, so these natural mothers really have worked hard to hold their emotions in check. This ensures that the country has plenty to go around, even space enough for solitude, never overcrowded. Quality over quantity, everyone was cared for and sickness was almost unknown. Their entire lives are preventative care against all ailments. These nation-loved children grow up in the lap of comfort to become kind, productive mothers themselves. Chapter 7 Our Growing Modesty Finally, Terry, Jeff, and Van are considered ready for the world beyond the fortress. They are even allowed to have scissors. However, Terry still complains that these mothers don't fit his image, for they do not fawn over babies and act like clucking hens the way women back home do. The boys get a tour of the country with no bodyguards, just their teachers. Jeff loves Sava like an aunt, Van and Somal are good chums, and yet Terry, always the outlier, is like a child being looked after by a diplomat, Moadin always calm and patient with him. When she lets an argument go, he always believes he was the winner. In this way and others, Terry has become less appealing as a friend in Van's eyes. Back home, he had been good fun, and ladies liked him, but here his masculinity feels out of place and brash. He makes up silly nicknames for the teachers behind their backs, and scoffs at local customs. For example, he wants to know about surnames, but there are none here since there is but one family with careful records going all the way back to the first mother. Even the current land mother, like a president, has the same name she was born with. Only with added words that mean wise. Mera became Odumera. Every generation has enough names for each girl to be given one. The women add their names to their crafts, like furniture, houses, and pottery, but they aren't overly prideful about their work. Just as they don't take all the credit for their offspring's well-being, each person inherits everything the country has to offer. The boys find this very difficult to understand, since men like the world to know who their magnificent sons are. As for the effectiveness of surnames, the boys have to admit that different cultures handle them in different ways, and they don't know if there is a superior one. This is a very reasonable society, Herland. Women who are great observers become officials, inspectors, and innovators. Those who are very creative will focus on inventing and engineering those innovations, with lots of observer feedback. When confronted with an entirely reasonable societal structure like this, the boys have to be careful not to ask too many questions before they're ready to talk about what the men do back home. Jeff and Van begin to appreciate the way things are run here, though Terry remains skeptical. Another perfectly engineered industry is food production. In a country the size of Holland, with a population of three million, the women have dedicated themselves to cultivating high-quality nutrition for everyone. Through working closely with plants, they have also increased their knowledge of many sciences, including their own unique physiology. However, despite understanding themselves, the women feel they must be missing out on the diversity offered in the wide world beyond the mountains. They discuss nature versus nurture with the boys to get a bigger perspective on whether their quest for improvement came from the first mother or was cultivated over generations. Van, the narrator, admits that the women's vast intelligence was at once impressive and mortifying. The vast range of their worldview staggers him, as they think not only of citizens of their small nation already alive, but also those yet to come. Some improvements are set in motion whose plans will take centuries to accomplish. Now every tree bears fruit, including one that was poisonous to them 900 years ago. They focus so much on trees because they are the easiest to grow and care for, not requiring any tilled fields. Different varieties are grown throughout the country, depending on the weather there. The forests are then fertilized with everything—dead leaves, table scraps, night soil, etc. Eventually Van learns that the women take everything the boys say or don't say and put it together. If questions aren't fully answered, a skeleton outline is put down and filled in over time. The boys find themselves trying to conceal horrible truths of the wide world more and more, but their teachers notice when they are trying to avoid topics. Terry is quite upset by their prying, always saying these grandmothers simply can't understand a man's world. Jeff, on the other hand, sees clearly how the grandfathers have mucked things up. None of them could name any true faults of the society they now lived in. Quote, Suppose there is a country of women only, Jeff had put it, over and over. What'll they be like? And we had been cocksure as to the inevitable limitations, the faults and vices, of a lot of women. We had expected them to be given over to what we called feminine vanity, frills and furbelows, and we found they had evolved a costume more perfect than the Chinese dress, richly beautiful when so desired, always useful, of unfailing dignity and good taste." We had expected a dull, submissive monotony and found a daring social inventiveness far beyond our own, and a mechanical and scientific development fully equal to ours. We had expected pettiness and found a social consciousness besides which our nations looked like quarreling children, feeble-minded ones at that. We had expected jealousy and found a broad, sisterly affection, a fair-minded intelligence to which we could produce no parallel. We had expected hysteria, and found a standard of health and vigor, a calmness of temper, to which the habit of profanity, for instance, was impossible to explain. We tried it. All these things even Terry had to admit, but he still insisted that we should find out the other side pretty soon. Unquote. Intrigued by Terry's insistence that there must be imperfection somewhere, Van asks his teacher Somol directly. Sitting with him in the garden overlooking the fields, having just eaten a delicious meal, she ponders the question. She admits that the citizens of her land feel like their accomplishments are slowing down. That true perfection is getting farther away. It was their ancestors who did amazing things, like get rid of criminal behavior by convincing badly behaved women not to reproduce, although the worst ones seemed incapable. If those women insisted on giving birth, the child would be raised by others. Education and child rearing is already managed by a select handful of suitable people. The women's maternal love is so intense that they usually choose to partly entrust their daughters to people skilled in that field. Babies are raised within the community, not by one single mother. Van finds it difficult to imagine a version of maternal love that would allow others to help in this way, admitting she is not the most skilled parent to her baby. Chapter 8 The Girls of Her Land At last, the boys are allowed to see the general population and give lectures to girls of all ages. They groom themselves thoroughly in preparation for this task, trimming their beards carefully as their one real distinction as men. They dress in their favorite outfits, Terry's being the most decorated, Jeff's being a bit more Shakespearean, and Van's being nothing but comfortable. Placed in front of an audience, the boys are encouraged to prepare and give a synopsis of world history to the people of a tiny nation who know only what they've figured out on their own. Somal and the other teachers show the boys the outline they have created based on what they have heard so far, in case it might help them organize their thoughts. Quote, we were eager to see it, and deeply impressed. To us, at first, these women, unavoidably ignorant of what to us was the basic commonplace of knowledge, had seemed on the plane of children, or of savages. What we had been forced to admit, with growing acquaintance, was that they were ignorant as Plato and Aristotle were, but with a highly developed mentality quite comparable to that of ancient Greece." As with the teachers, the boys struggle to answer all the pointed questions they get from the bright-eyed, attentive young girls they lecture. At times, the teachers have to step in and save the boys from this endless barrage. Afterward, the boys are finally able to meet the young women on friendly terms. Terry dives in like a practiced swimmer. Hmm. Jeff looks like a man among nuns, Ah. and Van does his best to be personable Mm. while watching his friends. He's curious about which women will be drawn to Jeff's worshipping gaze, and which ones prefer Terry's strong personality. However, it's not long before Terry's suave approach Mm -hmm. to conversation begins to irritate the girls. Their cheeks flush at his compliments, but they stare straight back at him angrily without dropping their gaze or acting coy. Only the strongest-willed females continue speaking with him, strong against the unpleasantness of his prideful attitude. Terry gets more and more confused by Mm -hmm. the girls' reactions, especially when he sees how Jeff has quite a crowd, and Van has more than both of them. While never very popular back home in a romantic sense, Van did have female friends, and the women here liked to speak with him. Quote, "'Jeff had a following, if I may call it that, of the more sentimental, though that's not the word I want, the less practical, perhaps, the girls who were artists of some sort, ethicists, teachers, that kind. Terry was reduced to a rather combative group, keen, logical, inquiring minds, not overly sensitive, the very kind he liked least,' While, as for me, I became quite cocky over my general appeal. Unquote. Back at home, Terry declares that these are not girls. They are nothing but boys. Critical, impertinent youngsters. Jeff, meanwhile, thinks about the day dreamily. In order to spend time with the girls of this country, Terry was forced to edit his approach. And this really came into play when the boys were reunited with those three girls they met on their first night. Celis, Alima, and Elidor. Jeff woos Tellis with long displays of affection for her, mm. quote, exalted sentiment and measureless perfection, unquote. Van becomes good friends with all three girls before finding a special spark with Elidore. Mm. And Terry has a long, hard road ahead of him with Alima mm. that involves many quarrels, mended behavior, breakups, makeups, and heartache that only a powerful woman like Elima could endure. Before getting into these courtships, Van spends some time discussing how the women of this country saw the boys. This is what he gathered from speaking with his teacher, Somal. From another country, probably men, evidently highly civilized, doubtless possessed of much valuable knowledge, may be dangerous, catch them if possible, tame them, and train them if necessary. This may be a chance to re-establish a bisexual state for our people. After 2,000 years, these women were the masters of their domain, like whales in the ocean with no predators, nothing to be afraid of, especially not three young men. They had long since outgrown being timid. The knowledge gained by the teachers was circulated throughout all three million citizens. They studied the boys like interesting specimens. This is not the kind of interest the boys had in mind. While Terry, Jeff, and Van thought they'd have the pick of the lot, it was the women who really made the choice to keep them. This was not the rosebud garden of girls Terry thought it would be. There isn't even a concept of sex love because these women exist as a community and reproduce without a need for this physical connection. Even Van's pride is hurt a little when he understands why the women like him so much. He is more like them in temperament, more like the women of this land, while Terry and Jeff feel more other. The women see themselves as people, and Van treats them as such. He doesn't try to protect or serve them the way Jeff does. He doesn't try to bribe them with jewels like Terry had, items that were not worn or admired but placed in museums for study. Van has the least to give in the form of gifts or service, and therefore is the most attractive as a person. The people of this country are preparing for the great change, determining whether they are adaptable enough to return to a life with men at their side. As such, the relationships between the boys and the forest girls they first met are allowed to flourish. However, while Celis is bewildered by Jeff's admiration, and alima is put off by Terry's attitude and the way he tries to woo other girls after a fight, delaying the happiness available to them as couples, Van and Elidor become great friends, <laughs> discovering more about each other as one sees the ever more beautiful regions of a country newly explored. They talk, they walk, they have discussions... Van learns a lot about the philosophies of her land, and appreciates its, quote, "...marvelous inner growth as well as outer perfection," unquote. He stops feeling like a prisoner and a stranger, finding a sense of identity alongside this new friend. It actually takes a little while for feelings of love to develop, as Van has never found delight in girls the way Terry did. He didn't come to this place looking for a harem. He and Elidor simply enjoy their time together, playing games and racing as comrades, He admires her forestry skills, interested in her profession. But over time, something bigger blossoms in his heart as they come to recognize each other as two souls. Quote, life got bigger. It seemed as if I understood, as I never had before, as if I could do things, as if I too could grow, if she would help me. In one profound moment, following weeks spent together, Van looks into her eyes and finds something. Fan and the boys learn that these three girls have been with them the entire time they've been in her land, some of the first to spot the plane, then the ones to follow them through the forest, and later the guards watching the plane. Celis, Alima, and Elidor more or less staked their claim on their men, but the boys wouldn't have it any other way. However, the boys have to figure out how to fit these relationships into their understanding of sex, love, and marriage. There is not man and woman when both people are welcome to the same professions, the same strengths, the same interactions. Terry, Jeff, and Van are surrounded by women-made houses and roads. What is there left for a man to do to justify being head of the household, the man in the relationship? This leads to another frustrating conversation when Jeff wants to take a basket from Celis so that she doesn't have to carry it. He tries to explain that women should not be burdened that men should handle heavy lifting while women take care of the children. At first, Celis is dazzled by the concept, as it suggests that half the population is fully dedicated to raising the next generation. Alima wants to know if this is true in every country or just theirs, and Terry says she shouldn't think so hard and just allow herself to be waited on. She points out that men like Terry don't like to be waited on. When she asks more about that, Jeff and Terry pass the conversation back to Van, the philosopher. The relationship between Terry and Alima continues to be volatile. While Jeff is receptive to some of what Van has discussed with Ellador on the subject of men and women finding balance in a relationship, Terry is not. He is madly in love with Alima, loyal with a fiery passion. More than once he tries to sweep her off her feet, only to be rebuffed so bluntly it takes weeks for him to mend things enough to try again. Only her determination to experiment and her affection for Terry in good moments keeps her from cutting things off. Van suspects her love for Terry is not as deep as what Celis and Elidore feel for their men. When it comes time to get married, Jeff wants to bring the women home for a religious ceremony. But there's no way that's happening. Terry points out they need to meet the women on their terms, a sentiment that shows off his growth, yet he still talks about how these women have never been mastered. You'd better try not to do any mastering if you value your chances, Van warns. There is no reference in her land for courtship. There is no union similar to marriage, even 2,000 years ago when the women were part of harems. There is no culture of patriotism because the mountains separate the country from anyone they would compare themselves to. Quote, they loved their country because it was their nursery, playground, and workshop, theirs and their children's, unquote. Even education is thought of differently, referring more to their career training than the vast knowledge bestowed upon each and every child. Even the women's plans for the great change come from the hope that future generations will benefit from it. Chapter 9. Our Relations and Theirs Terry, Jeff, and Van must grapple with the fact that in her land there is no romantic love or sex love, so Salis, Aleema, and Elidor equate their feelings for the boys as a deep friendship, unlike the love they have for their mothers or sisters. The boys distract themselves by enjoying the girls' company, joining them on forest walks. The closest thing the boys have to a job is the information they provide about the outside world, so they are more companions than helpers. This leads the six of them into a discussion about staying home versus traveling the country, as the women here go all over rather than stay in one place. This is very different from the wife and home setup that Terry especially thinks is natural. Unfortunately, he never gave enough thought to what unemployed women did with their time when children didn't need them. Terry once again walks into a trap, unable to explain exactly why it is that wealthy women with more servants have fewer children, while poorer women with no servants have more. Celis, Elima, and Elidor ask again, What do these women do? In the end, there is no sure answer, so the girls assume that they, coming from a land of half a people, must be incapable of seeing the bigger picture that is society beyond the mountains. Later, when Terry and Elima are having a fight that's separated them temporarily, Terry complains that there is nothing to smoke or drink in this country— He's irritated also by the fact that no matter where they go, there's always a watchful woman nearby. The mature type he's nicknamed, Colonels. A big argument breaks out as Terry insists this land is entirely flawed, with no home nor brothel, while Jeff is certain these women are pure perfection. Van mostly sits to the side, thinking of Ellador, throwing tidbits into the conversation mischievously. "'It's an everlasting parlor and nursery,' Terry grumbles. (sighs) "'And workshop,' Van says." And school, and office, and laboratory, and studio, and theater. I never saw, I never dreamed of, such universal peace and goodwill and mutual affection, Jeff says. If you like a perpetual Sunday school, it's all very well, Terry says, but I like something doing. Here it's all done. Van admits Terry has a point, although Jeff is quite happy living amongst a beehive or anthill family like this, and Van is endlessly fascinated by her land from a sociological perspective. Terry finds himself without competition, without challenge, without anything to conquer. The one thing they can all agree on is they wish there was more drama in plays and stories. Entertainment is somewhat lacking to their taste. They had no interplay of warring nations, no aristocracy in its ambitions, no wealth and poverty opposition. The excitement comes mostly from grand festivals and processions, a mixing of art forms that involves people of every age. These events are dance, music, religion, and education together. Van learns more and more because his close relationship with Elidor is a window into this worldview. Meanwhile, Terry and Alima constantly have sparks flying, madly drawn to and repulsed by each other. As for Jeff and Celis, they are happy, but don't seem to have as much fun as Van and Elidor do. Elidor shows Van a world where babies are born into peace, beauty, order, safety, love, wisdom, justice, patience, and plenty. Every need is met sufficiently. They frolic like fawns in a meadow, cherished by society as a whole, and eager to grow into productive members. "'All forms of education are linked, "'and they follow their interests into professions that suit them. "'It was a butterfly that made me a forester,' says Elodore. "'I was about eleven years old, "'and I found a big purple and green butterfly on a low flower. "'I caught it, very carefully, by the closed wings, "'as I had been told to do, "'and carried it to the nearest insect teacher to ask her its name. "'She took it from me with a little cry of delight. "'Oh, you blessed child,' she said. "'Do you like obernuts?' "'Of course I like obernuts,' and said so. "'It is our best food nut, you know.' "'This is a female of the obernut moth,' she told me. "'They are almost gone. "'We have been trying to exterminate them for centuries. "'If you had not caught this one, "'it might have laid eggs enough to raise worms "'enough to destroy thousands of our nut trees, thousands of bushels of nuts, "'and make years and years of trouble for us.' "'Everyone congratulated me.' The children all over the country were told to watch for that moth, if there were any more. I was shown the history of the creature, and an account of the damage it used to do, and how long and hard our foremothers had worked to save that tree for us. I grew a foot, it seemed to me, and determined then and there to be a forester. Van concludes that children here are not shielded from a big bad world. The world is opened to them like a book that is theirs to explore every crevice. As for real books, Van loves children's literature. There is not a separate path for men and women because everyone here is the same, so the life cycle laid out for them in books is simple. Have a baby when the desire finds you, and spend your days doing wonderful work that makes you happy and benefits everyone. Children grow up bold and determined, with no sense of shame, no knowledge of anything to be ashamed of. Everything is in the sun, nothing in the shadows. Life is like a game for children as they learn what missteps to avoid, the naughty ones treated more like poor players, still learning. The more he learns about the great foresight of motherhood this country treats like a religion, the more impressed Van is. The closest thing he's ever seen is an aristocrat maintaining their wealth in order to pass it down to his descendants, never on such an unimaginably large scale. Society itself is treated like a child trying to grow and improve. Even stories aren't fairy tales, because everything is meant to teach children real things about their homeland. As for child-rearing, Van was both flabbergasted and in awe. Mothers kept their babies close for one glorious year, then the child was mostly passed over to women whose jobs it is to raise and educate the youth. These co-mothers are their help, to guide, not to steal. They raise the babies in warm parts of the country where the infants can roll naked in the soft grass before exploring colder climates as they get older. The joy that is these women's childhood is what really gets Van thinking critically of the errored thinking of people back home. He sees now that boys are taught to see life ahead of them one way and girls another. It warms his heart to see little girls here chattering happily and freely about the great things they will grow up to do, unhindered by any high or low expectations. Their overall health and well-being makes anything possible. In order to avoid looking foolish in front of his soulmate Elidor, Van goes to his teacher Somol for help. Somal is very supportive, fascinated by his new love forming for the first time in over 2,000 years, like everyone in her land is. Though disturbed by this, Van presses on, wanting to know about education theory. Somal says, Here is a young human being. The mind is as natural a thing as the body, a thing that grows, a thing to be used and enjoyed. We seek to nourish, to stimulate, to exercise the mind of a child as we do the body. She goes on to explain that they do not overstimulate or force information onto children. They simply provide the child with everything they wish to know. Every child must be catered to, thus the women who work closely with children while their birth mothers return to other professions. It's a difficult, rewarding task. A child's interest in their favorite area is cultivated, while at the same time ensuring other sciences are studied to prevent boredom and atrophy. Children and their abilities are fostered for the greater quality of the country as a whole, as psychology is treated as a part of history, not as individual well-being. Methods are always being updated for the long-term benefits of all. The goal is to feed the mind without tiring it. Games are a favorite educational tool and have been developed over the course of 1600 years. Van is quite glum, thinking back to all the children he had seen in his life, constantly whining about boredom, and knows with great certainty the women here handle the mental thirst of their youth much more appropriately. Here, everything in life is curated to hold their interest, made just for them. Homes where children live are designed for safety and comfort, and education begins at birth without anyone knowing they're being taught because this is simply the glorious, entertaining life these women lead. Chapter 10. Their Religions and Our Marriages. Van admits he only really understood the spiritual aspect of life in Herland after falling in love with Elidor. Before that, His manhood, his foreign mindset, and his somewhat Christian feeling held him back. The pair discuss the matter, Elidor making a chart based on everything Van tells her about religions of the world, and putting pins in their similarities. She's the most impressed with the idea of a common brotherhood beneath an all-seeing father figure, especially when it involves a holy son. Unfortunately, Elidor is horrified by many customs and beliefs Van tells her about, though she tries to be intellectual about it. The thought that a child would go to hell for not having been baptized is unbearably (gasps) awful. She ends up fleeing to a local temple to speak with the wise women there until she feels better. It becomes clear to Van that this land is peaceful because there are no horrible ideas. They were all thrown aside as the women learned to live and survive and flourish in this tiny country of theirs. Even ideas about ancestor worship are different, seen with an endlessly reasonable sense of logic. Those who are dead and gone knew less. And we know more now. The first mother was revered for what she represents, not for any scripture written. Everyone's eyes are on the future, never on the past. Ellador tries to soothe Van as he realizes his misconceptions about the nature of women as being conservative creatures. She says that this country started out of necessity, creating a new way because there was no other way. When that succeeded too well and they almost died of starvation, they put all their efforts into allowing only one baby per person and creating a comfortable world for those children. As for religion, it is almost Buddhist in its manifestation. The mother spirit is part of them, their driving force. They do not worship a being, they simply live their lives for the sake of this higher calling. And each individual is free to do as they please, with no responsibilities to the mothers who birthed them. Their responsibility is to live their lives well and happily, exactly as their mothers desired they should. There is no such thing as eternal punishment after death, and no one is shunned for anything during life. If there is something like a god, it is not angry at them, just as mothers here are not angry about anything. Elidor wants to know about Van's god, and is rather amused as she pieces together how he looks like a man with a beard, the way the boys look. However, Van stumbles when she asks innocent questions about beards and clothes and what man wears because God wears it, and what man thinks God looks like because that's what man looks like. In the end, Van tells her that life here seems more correct than life as he knew it. Elodore puzzles over this, confused as to why patriarchal traditions from thousands of years ago are still followed today. Why has religion stagnated when there is progress elsewhere? who wrote the rules that everyone has to follow for millennia to come. As for the temples, Elidor explains that if there is a great power, it is a motherly one that wishes for humanity's well-being. Love is the primary ethic, followed by things like patience, gentleness, and courtesy. This spirituality is funneled into every aspect of life—cleanliness, health care, child care, progress. The wise women at the temples are members of the community who enjoy spending time there and, quote, being there with all their love and wisdom and trained thought to soothe out rough places for anyone who needed it. Sometimes it was a real grief, very rarely a quarrel, most often a perplexity. Even in her land, the human soul had its hours of darkness," Unquote. Van is in awe over the beautiful simplicity of it all. This is the true meaning of loving one's neighbor. Now he knows how these women think about life and how they don't think about hell, but he wants to know what they think about eternity. However, it takes Elidor a while to grasp what he means. She understands that time goes on forever, but it's never occurred to her that a human being might want to go on living in any form for all time. The country is too small to hold immortals, and what would someone need a beautiful afterlife for when life is already wonderful? More and more, the boys can't bring themselves to reveal the full horrors of the outside world to the happy creatures of her land. Even Terry, who criticizes this society, never likes to tell them bad things about the world beyond the mountains. They use the topic of marriage to steer the conversation away from all that. Jeff is the most determined to have a proper marriage. Of course they haven't any marriage ceremony or service, he says, but we can make it a sort of Quaker wedding and have it in the temple. It is the least we can do for them. Van hears and thinks Riley. It is. There was so little, after all, that we could do for them. The girls go along with it sweetly, though they don't really understand the purpose of taking a last name. They don't even know what a wife is and how the word applies to them. Terry explains that a wife belongs to a man, and Jeff adds that a husband belongs to a woman, till death do they part. This then leads into an uncomfortable conversation about how women first carry their father's name, then their husband's. While the boys feel that they have nothing to offer besides their names, the girls insist that their love is not conditional. They love the boys for who they are. There is a huge turnout to the triple wedding at the country's biggest temple. The teachers Somal, Zava, and Moadin attend, almost like relatives at this point. There are processions, dances, and anthems. A new song is written about this new hope for the people and new tie to other lands. Now there is more than sisterhood and brotherhood. There is also fatherhood. This is the dawn of a new era. Chapter 11 our difficulties. A new challenge lies ahead, married life. Being good men, the boys wanted to marry Celis, alima and Elidor so that relations between them would be legal and sacred. Now they have to figure out what that actually looks like. Yes, the mechanics of the birds and the bees were discussed beforehand, but now how do they accomplish it? Terry, Jeff, and Van weren't exactly educated to be teachers in this arena. Men back home tend to do things to their own liking and their wives get used to whatever that is. Van thinks it would have been easier to marry an alien, so long as it came from a culture with a marriage history. Terry has the hardest time. He grew up expecting his wife to be an extension of himself, to be home while he goes off to continue with his life. In fact, all three boys sort of felt like the girls would get used to the idea after the marriage happened. Their opinions mattered, but after marriage their minds would change, surely. Looking back, Van knows that this was ignorant and stupid to assume. He and his two friends are up against 2000 years of life without love, marriage or sex. Their shared woes bring the boys back together despite their differences. Van gives an analogy for a life with these women. He feels as if he is an ant who comes from a place where ants live in pairs. He now lives with a female ant from a great colony who loves him but has a different perspective on daily life as a whole. Had their positions been reversed, perhaps she would acclimate to his culture, but the opposite is true. He takes it a step further by comparing these girls to angels who are used to flying away to perform divine miracles across the globe, returning to their beloved man only occasionally. She is not a stray angel. He is a stray man among winged angels. Terry continues to struggle, falling into black fury now and then. Jeff, on the other hand, is basically a saint living among angels. He worships Celis and everything she represents. And yet, Jeff and Terry are very close friends, drawn together by certain masculine urges the women couldn't quite fulfill. Van is less sure of his position; he's not a lustful man nor a shining knight, and feels all too human and unsure. He too struggles with the fact that Elidor sees the path forward for him as fatherhood, not seeing him as the man he wishes she did. Celis, Alima, and Elidor go right back to being foresters. The boys have qualified as assistants, but it feels like they're simply passing the time until a proper life takes shape for them. They don't even live together with the girls, as everyone in this country has their own house with two rooms and a bath. The second room is the mark of adulthood, when you start to have friends over. Van discusses his loneliness with Elidor, who can only point out that they are alone together whenever they have a picnic in the woods, or whatever else. Being alone together at home is not important to her. She's completely content with her solitary home. To make matters worse, the three brides are not eager to consummate the marriage constantly. They see that birds in nature love each other, yet mate only once a year. Why must humans constantly add such activities to a very good, companionable relationship? They can't endlessly come together in the bedroom without any thought for the children who might come from the union. It's also hard for Eldor to understand why Van wants to develop a home together, constantly in each other's space. He might as well be appealing to a goddess who does not share the same needs as her mortal lover. Ellador and the others see themselves as individuals second, their place within the great whole that is their psychology being the most important thing. Van would have liked her to say we about them as a couple, but instead she says we about her people. Eldor considers things as if they were talking about life on Mars. The only way she can understand it is if she imagines a world where married couples live on a constant emotional high that produces art and joy and stimulation and mutual understanding. But Van can't say that that is true to real life. He feels a certain resentment growing inside him, compounded by the deep love he feels for his wife, if that's even the right word for what Eldor means to him. He resents the scientific logic that permeates this society, the way his every move is subtly studied. Over time, he learns to switch his expectations, changing his mind about what is a physiological need and what is a psychological desire. Still, it is not an easy task. And Elidor calmly tells him, when asked, that she will not perform this task with him when undesired, though she is sympathetic that he has to adapt so much to the ways of this land. Van learns to focus on all the other wonders of life, not on the snack between meals, as he calls it. Yes, there are times he wishes desperately for his wife's embrace, but there is so much beautiful country to explore, so many arts and sciences to see in Eldor’s company, that he can go without. Looking back, Van also recognizes that she did not do as he would expect women to. Elidor would not pull away and leave him wanting, but give him so much companionship and attention that he would actually choose to have a reprieve from time to time. A very good trick indeed. Just as he had tried to woo her, so Elidor had tempted Van into being bonded with her on so many levels, as friend, lover, and professional colleague, that he was endlessly devoted to her. Jeff and Salis are also getting along well, but Terry cannot accept the state of things, and talking about it makes Van feel quite ashamed. All three men struggled with the same problem Van did, dealing with women who are part of the collective, who have no need of a roommate or a bedmate interested in the marriage act only for the purpose of bringing together men and women through a future child. For Terry, the strain is much worse, demanding Lech that he always was, and Alima is less talented than Elidor at dissuading his advances. Before the wedding, Terry said to the boys, "'There never was a woman yet that did not enjoy being mastered.'" Van feels sorry for the hard-headed man who honestly believed that that was what women liked, what his wife Aleema really wanted, deep down. Within a week of marriage, Alima begins to avoid spending time with Terry. But unfortunately, the more she kept away, the more he wanted her. He's angry about their separate residences, that she won't let him live with her. The way he goes on about Aleema walking away from one of their rows would make one think she was an animal he was hunting. They begin to have really big, serious fights, and what common ground they had seems fully lost. Not wanting to be harassed, Alima has teacher Moadin come to stay next door and works with an assistant during the day. They are not afraid of Terry or the men, having not known fear for many centuries, but Alima does not like having to deal with him all the time. Quote, Othello could not have extinguished Alima with a pillow, as if she were a mouse, unquote. Van looks back and thinks Terry thought he had the right to do as he pleased that it was actually in Alima's best interest that she be conquered so he hides in her room one night and waits for her to come home his plan doesn't work Alima shouts for ah! Moadin and more women come running Terry fights them all viciously but is unable to overpower such athletic women Quote, Terry dashed about like a madman. he would cheerfully have killed them he told me that himself but he couldn't when he swung a chair over his head, one sprang in the air and caught it. Two threw themselves bodily upon him and forced him to the floor. It was only the work of a few moments to have him tied hand and foot, and then, in sheer pity for his futile rage, to anesthetize him. Quote, was in a cold fury. She wanted him killed, actually. There was a trial before the local overmother, and this woman, who did not enjoy being mastered, stated her case. In a court in our country, he would have been held quite within his rights, of course, but this was not our country. It was theirs. They seemed to measure the enormity of the offense by its effect upon a possible fatherhood, and he scorned even to reply to this way of putting it. He did not let himself go once, and explained in definite terms that they were incapable of understanding a man's needs, a man's desires, a man's point of view. He called them neuters, epicenes, bloodless, sexless creatures. He said they could, of course, kill him, as so many insects could, but that he despised them nonetheless. And all those stern, grave mothers did not seem to mind his despising them, not in the least. It was a long trial, and many interesting points were brought out as to their views on our habits. And after a while, Terry had his sentence. He waited, grim and defiant. The sentence was, You must go home. Unquote. Chapter 12 Expelled Terry, Jeff, and Van always meant to leave Herland and never meant to stay so long as they did, but to be sent away is not how they would have imagined their departure. They later found out that no man ever came to their rescue because the directions they left behind were burned in a fire, so they could have remained missing in Herland forever had they wished. Although Terry tries to make a big show of being glad to leave this half-country, it's clear to all three boys that they've been treated well, and they're honestly lucky the punishment they face isn't worse. Until they leave, Terry is under constant guard watch. Quote, He laughed at their chill horror. Parcel of old maids, he called them. They're all old maids, children or not. They don't know the first thing about sex. When Terry said sex sex with a very large s, he meant the male sex, naturally. Its special values, its profound conviction of being the life force, its cheerful ignoring of the true life process, and its interpretation of the other sex solely from its own point of view." Terry's teacher Moadin is his primary watcher, like a gravely patient parent with a degenerate child. Jeff and Van are allowed to visit as much as they want, while preparations are made for the journey. There will be three on the trip. Terry, because he must, Van, because two are safer in the plane, and Elidor because she insists. Jeff has no desire to leave, and is sure Celis would keel over from shock and horror as soon as she set foot in their home country. He warns Van that he should tell Elidor more of what to expect before they make it back. And though Van tries, he really can't bring himself to break her heart about a good many truths when her eyes sparkle as she imagines a lively land of both men and women working in harmony towards a more radiant future than her land could ever achieve. She is more excited to see the beautiful relationship between sexes, that is marriage, and the incredible lives led by women who are mothers and nothing else. She's sure the boys must be homesick, that they love her land the same way they love tropical islands they've talked about a place of vacation and relaxation, nothing more. Van reflects on how things went when Elidor witnessed his home, how she saw inequalities that had never even occurred to him. More and more, Van realizes he and the boys inadvertently assumed that all the things they missed about their home must also be missed subconsciously by the women of her land. But they were, in fact, quite fine without them. They lived blissful lives free of heavy expectations to be a man or act like a woman, No wars, no burdened farm animals, no dark mines, no cathedrals, no preaching or teaching or lecturing. These women have largely forgotten about anything associated with being men. They only know that there are male-bodied people somewhere out there. They do not really understand the separation between the sexes, the differences assigned to each. After more than a year in this all-female country, Terry and Van are going home. Terry's actions are viewed as a great calamity, the first to be known in many generations. Even Elidor, who has a deep connection with Van, cannot understand the want to indulge in certain activities, with no thought to whether a child would come of it when everything she and her people do is for the good of future children. To her, it is against nature to seek this act out, void of desire to be parents. When Van holds his lover close, he sees her eyes go distant as she observes from afar. Quote, Elidor, at times like this, always reminded me of Epidacus. I will put you in a prison, said his master. My body, you mean, replied Epidacus calmly. I will cut your head off, said his master. Have I said that my head could not be cut off? Unquote. Elidor understands only a little the pleasure of man and wife enjoying each other, but morally can't stand by it for reasons stated. In seeing Van's desperate search for this connection, the best she can do is to say... I begin to see, a little, how Terry was so driven to crime. Oh, Hmm. come, that's a pretty hard word for it, Van says. After all, Alima was his wife, you know. Despite long talks, even trying to cover the seedy sides of Van's cultural history, they don't make much progress. Quote, "'She urged me to be patient, and I was patient. You see, I loved her so much that even the restrictions she so firmly established left me much happiness.' We were lovers, and there was surely delight enough in that." Unquote. That is not to say that the wives did not participate in the act of marriage, as it is central to the great new hope that is the reintroduction of men into their society. Until Terry's crime, all three couples worked on getting pregnant, but only Celis and Jeff have so far succeeded. To the people of Herland, a natural conception is to them as miraculous as virgin birth is to the rest of the world, and makes a new beginning— Celis is like Mother Mary with her adoring Jeff by her side. For a moment, Ellador is jealous, but she knows it is best, since she is leaving with Terry and Van for the outside world. She tells Van they must not try for a child anymore until their adventuring is done, otherwise she will stay here. Despite her curiosity, she doesn't plan to raise a child outside of her country, and Van has to make a choice. I'd rather have you, Elidor, than all the children in the world, he says. I'd rather have you with me, on your own terms, than not have you. As narrator, Van spends a long time writing about what Elodore means to him. Friend, comrade, sister, lover. She is not the glorified servant most women become to their husbands. She is not timid, inexperienced, or weak. Van has to learn how to love up rather than love down to his wife to think of her as more than a wife more than just a piece of himself through this relationship van begins to understand the reverence these women feel towards the idea of a mother who is more than quote the under flannels and donuts mother the fussy person that waits on you and spoils you and doesn't really know you unquote van decides that if Elador does not come adventuring then he will take terry to the coast and come right back but of course she wants to go As for Terry, he still thinks of these women as morbid one-sided cripples, sexless, epicene, undeveloped neuters. Van watches him with pity, knowing that on one hand, Terry was madly in love with Elima, as he had never loved a woman before, yet the supreme conquest of her was forever denied by her and all her female kin. She did not submit, she did not kill herself or run away, she fought back. She kicked me, Terry tells Van. (laughs) I was doubled up with pain, of course, and she jumped on me and yelled for old harpy Moadine, and they had me trussed up in no time. I believe Alima could have done it alone, he goes on, somewhat admiringly. She's as strong as a horse. And of course a man's helpless when you hit him like that. No woman with a shade of decency. At that, Van can't help but smile sourly, and Harry stops talking as the grim humor of the situation dawns on him. Giving what he was trying to do, quote, "...an assault like his rather waived considerations of decency," unquote. I'd give a year of my life to have her alone again, hmm. Terry says. But he never does. Alima goes to stay in a far corner of the country and does not say goodbye. While the boys ready the plane, Eldor has many weeks of preparations and farewells as the first woman to leave them in 2,000 years. She does interviews, speaks with teachers, and is seen off by thousands... Many would have gone in her stead, they want her to bring back knowledge about the family of nations beyond, about evolution, about natural science. The High Council discusses the terrible things Elidora will see, for the boys' attempts to hide some truths were thoroughly seen through. They know about the prevalence of bad eyesight, the many diseases not yet conquered, the existence of poverty and crime, the inequalities between the races. In many ways, Elador gets a fuller education about Van's world from the elders and council members than she did from the boys. Salis was left alone to enjoy her marriage and pregnancy, referred to as her great work. Jeff and Van meet with their teachers, Zava and Somal, one last time, and the teachers make them promise that the location of her land will not be revealed until Elador returns with her report and the council decides what to do. Illness has been all but eradicated here, and they are vulnerable to the diseases and vices of the outside world if a bunch of explorers suddenly showed up. Jeff agrees immediately, and Van takes a moment to appreciate how sensible this is. The thought of sickness ravaging this beautiful place is not to be considered. Terry almost doesn't promise, but it becomes clear that if he does not agree, then he will be kept here as a prisoner, possibly under anesthesia. Quote, He will promise, I think said Elidore. And he did. With which agreement we at last left her land. Unquote. The End There is an introduction to this book written by Anne J. Lane, but it is pretty long, so I'm not going to read it here. Let's instead take a moment to read the bios on the last page. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, 1860-1935, to 1935 humanist, wrote books of history, anthropology, ethics, and philosophy, as well as poetry, novels, satire, and social commentary. She devoted her life to lecturing and writing in order to persuade a vast audience of the feasibility of her feminist, socialist vision. Anne J. Lane is at the Mary Ingram Bunting Institute of Radcliffe College, preparing a biography of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. She is also editing a collection of Gilman's little-known fiction. Miss Lane has most recently published a study of Mary Ritter Beard, who, like Gilman, was a significant intellectual in her time and is much neglected in ours. Miss Lane is on leave from John Jay College, City University of New York, where she teaches history. Now it's time for our favorite game Did the cover artist read the book? Joan Hall's collage is very beautiful, especially with the interesting paper the book is printed on. If I had to guess, I'd say Hall at least knew something about the book since her art captures something of the boy's experience in her land. The setting is lush and green, grassy with big, leafy plants. Then there is a single naked man sitting alone, his head on his knees, curled in on himself, resigned. Above him, the faces of women with stern faces and short hair seem to haunt him, unfolding from the plant life, black and white in stark juxtaposition with the rest of the collage. When confronted by a country of women who are far and away superior beings with freedom, strength, knowledge, and confidence, the boys feel smaller and smaller both physically and spiritually. What do you think about this image now that you know the story? What did you think of her land in general? Let me know in the YouTube and Instagram comments sections what you thought. Before we get into analyzing the text, I want to reiterate that I don't think Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote this book to say that women are inherently better than men at everything. The beauty of Herland is that it takes everything that made Gilman miserable in her own life and flips it on its head. She struggled with being a wife, a mother, and a person dealing with postpartum depression. For those unfamiliar, pregnancy is a messy business when it comes to hormones, and there are many stages during a female person's period cycle and pregnancy that can induce unwanted feelings. Depression might only last a few weeks, or it can start during the pregnancy and continue for a long time afterward, even developing into psychosis in severe cases. It is a complication of giving birth, to quote the Mayo Clinic's website, like bleeding, tearing, stretch marks, and so on. And if a person is expected to conduct themselves as a, an upstanding woman, care for a newborn at all hours of the day and night, and not be hysterical, then that depression can be greatly aggravated especially if you might not have chosen that life path for yourself. The most important thing to note about the book Herland, in my opinion, is that the women of this all-female society essentially get to have it all. If they want to work with children, they can. If they want to be architects, farmers, or mathematicians, that's also fine. Since children are the future and everything they do is for those children, everyone is involved in parenting in one way or another through bettering their homeland. They are both mothers and independent agents. Gilman imagined a country in which everyone is free to be educated, comfortable, well-fed, and fulfilled, while also being sisters and mothers. For anyone familiar with the women's rights movement, the multitude of pockets in all the women's clothes are a clear reference to the suffragettes sewing more pockets on their clothes to make it clear they were capable of carrying things, working, caring for themselves, and voting. Gilman takes it a step further by putting her characters in trousers, describing their short practical hair, and introducing them as boyish tree-climbers. These are things not traditionally associated with young women, at least not in Gilman's time. The women's beauty while behaving with all the inhibitions of young men emphasizes the incredible freedom of their society, and this freedom is extended to their male visitors once they determine Terry, Jeff, and Van aren't a threat. To them, outsiders are male only physically. Otherwise, they are just people from another land. Let's discuss the very specific demographic of the characters. The women in Herland are described as more or less European in appearance, despite the suggestion that their mountain-ringed country is somewhere like Africa, South Asia, or South America where there are rivers and wilds and native peoples who are referred to as savages. Van the narrator chooses not to disclose the country's exact location in order to protect it from prying eyes. he explains that the women of her land are descended from settlers of some kind who moved there, not local people, which explains their fair yet tanned complexion. I believe this was a deliberate choice on Gilman's part since it would make it easier for her American and European readers to focus on the task at hand, accepting a nation made up of female-bodied people who are strong, capable, and smart. She is, in a sense, avoiding the problem of racial bias when sexual bias is already such an obstacle. Suffragettes like Gilman would have had to make choices like this in order to push their cause forward, though it was unfair to men and women of color who also needed to be helped into a better future. Just as conservationists who did great things for our national parks had racist or sexist tendencies, suffragettes and other cause leaders often fall victim to human prejudice. It's possible Gilman did not really think of such people in those terms, but manly world explorers probably would. Herland asks a very specific question. Can women do it alone? Gilman removed all other factors while writing her narrative. As for the lack of lesbians in this society, I would say this might be another conscious choice on Gilman's part. I admit that given the time she was writing in, there may have been topics she simply couldn't write about for a number of reasons, but I'll discuss these topics anyway. As with race, it seems like Gilman removed lust and sexuality from her land on purpose. This is a book solely about the battle of the minds of the sexes. Manly men come to a land of women expecting girly girls, only to find grown adults capable of science and engineering without the aid of testosterone. These women don't require men to protect them, to give them physical pleasure, to provide them with children, to do anything really. Over the course of the book, our narrator realizes that this country is better off the way it is, despite the women thinking that life with two sexes would be twice as productive, since in reality the opposite has proven true. I really appreciate Gilman's nuanced approach to the main characters. Because they are at once sympathetic, flawed, and metaphorical, they represent three attitudes towards women. Van Dyck, the narrator, is fairly neutral, seeing women as other, but not wholly incapable, though he is surprised by the extent to which they are able to create a society alone. His love is probably the most desirable, since he and Elidor are truly friends and comrades. I think it's important that Van is not endlessly reasonable, that he struggles with a desire for sex and usefulness, just as Terry does, though he doesn't act violently when he's denied. His own frustrations make him feel bad for Terry, and the culture he's come from makes it hard for him to see Terry's attempted assault as a true crime until he's thought long and hard about it. Jeff is on the far side of the scale, admiring everything about women, treating them like shining goddesses far above him. While a little naive, the way he worships Celis seems to be effective, and they are happy. When she gets pregnant, she essentially morphs into the Virgin Mary in his eyes, his devotion eternal to both her and the child she bears, as well as the country as a whole. If it is a daughter, I'm sure he'll hold her up as the most fabulous creature in existence. If it is a son, I actually think that would make a compelling sequel or follow-up story, as he might start to pass on a certain hatred of men due to his unhealthy obsession with women's perfection. And Terry is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yes, he learns to understand what women are capable of, that they have intelligent minds of their own, and he even falls in love with Elima, the most difficult of the women presented as choices by the narrative. But in the end he is unable to shake the misogynistic idea that men are inherently superior. It is ingrained in him. While incredibly tragic, as the story all but ends with him trying to force himself onto his wife, it is worth pointing out that Van admits this whole enterprise of discovering the country of only women was both Terry's idea and was reliant on his funds and gusto. His character seems to be Gilman's admittance that the patriarchy has made some grand achievements while also doing great harm, and it acknowledges that some people's minds will never be changed, no matter what you show them. Some ideas are fully baked in. Van struggles with this because Terry means a lot to him as a friend, but his opinion of the man declines steadily over the course of the book. Van is a particularly realistic male main character because he, too, doesn't fully change by the end, admitting that some of the change came after leaving her land and watching Elidor react to the world beyond the mountains. He is still a man of his time. Gilman doesn't write him as 100% perfect or reformed, He longs for sex, despite knowing it shouldn't be the building block of his marriage. He wishes to be married as much as the other men do, for propriety's sake, though intellectually he knows it's a bit ridiculous. He hesitates to fully condemn Terry for his terrible deeds and attitude towards women. He changes and alters his thoughts much more than Terry, but isn't magically transformed into a woman at heart. He changes the most, falling in love with this utopia as well as his wife, But the seeds of his upbringing continue to battle inside him. Terry changes less, unable to fully embrace the reality of these women's freedom, acting like a man ever convinced he can convert a lesbian. And Jeff changes the least, never really needing to edit his belief that women are incredible. For this reason, Jeff is the least compelling and the most unsettling character. Yes, Terry's deeds are the worst by far and are proof that perhaps her land should remain a secret since some people will never fully understand, but I can't help but feel like Jeff's purpose in the story is to point out that placing women on pedestals, like sparkly, delicate objects, is not doing them any more favors than blatantly saying they are objects. Violence and chivalry are two sides of the same coin, treating women as other, be it inferior or far better. It's mentioned several times that Jeff and Terry remain close friends despite their differing opinions on women. His main saving grace is his willingness to listen to the women and stand back as his wife shines during her pregnancy as a new leader of her people. All these character traits are all reflected in the first few pages of the book. Gilman does a great job in such a short novel of clearly defining these three men as very, very different. Even their hobbies say a lot about them. Terry likes hard science, things with rules namely mechanics and electricity. Presumably he is a very modern man, which is ironic given his regressive attitude towards women, thinking worse than a sex-crazed animal at times. In his eyes, things are right and wrong, but he struggles to be called out as wrong. For a while it seems like Aleema might teach him to be a more graceful loser, only for everyone to realize he is so much of a man that he has gone beyond the natural order into godlike territory, certain that he knows how the puzzle pieces of man and woman should connect and fall into place. In a world of dependent women, Terry is rich, suave, and attractive. In a world of independent women, Terry is repulsive to all, save the most strong, confident, tolerant, masculine women, like Aleema. As for Jeff, he says he likes the wonders of science, which ties in with his way of seeing the world in an almost childlike way. Though a doctor, his preferences for poems and plants paint him as less of a manly man than Terry, and puts him in an easier spot to appreciate the women in his life, though he holds them up as if each is mother nature incarnate. If Terry thinks of himself as a god, then Jeff thinks of his wife as an angel. And Van Dyck is a sociologist. More than the other two, he is in a position to see the world for what it is, humans interacting, making choices, raising children in their society. It's actually understandable that he longs for sex for the sake of pleasure, because his greatest interest is learning about people, connecting with them, and this outlet is eventually denied to him for the most part. He also struggles to understand the way maternity is expressed not through pride and selfishness, but through community and humility. To quote Elodore, It is her baby still. It is with her. She has not lost it. But she is not the only one to care for it. There are others whom she knows to be wiser. She knows it because she has studied as they did, practiced as they did, and honors their real superiority. For the child's sake, she is glad to have for it this highest care." We should also keep in mind there wasn't the best access to birth control back then, so Gilman might have written this very differently even a few decades later. In her day, sex could very easily lead to a baby, and the book points out that it is irresponsible to partake in this activity, knowing that an unwanted child might come from it. Abortion was, and still is, difficult and often illegal to obtain, so Gilman was writing from the perspective of a society that might have only one reliable option, abstinence, especially in her land where they wouldn't have any kind of contraception. Again, she was speculating about men versus women, not about sexuality in terms of pleasure, focusing on the way men desire sex despite any and all consequences. It seems like the women of her land don't even masturbate. They are so removed from anything regarding physical pleasure. A modern-day movie adaptation might have to think seriously about how to deal with race, pleasure, and homosexuality for the story to be taken seriously by 21st-century viewers. As is, I think it makes a powerful statement about the way so many children are conceived without any forethought. Returning to my discomfort regarding Jeff, there's something about him that reminds me of the short story A Portrait of Shunkin, featured in Seven Japanese Tales by Junichiro Tanizaki. In the story, we learn about two characters, Shunkin, a beautiful musician from a wealthy family who lost her sight at age eight, and Sasuke, a servant in her household who eventually becomes her husband. Their entire lives are chronicled through the research of a man who visited two gravestones on a hillside. Parts of the story are slow, about how they met in their youth and Sasuke was assigned to be her attendant, and how he came to worship her. Shunkin's appearance is even likened to Buddha. Other parts are quite dramatic and shocking, with Sasuke blinding himself to be like his teacher and wife, becoming a great musician on his own after she passes away, singing her praises until he dies. There are two ways to interpret this story, which I know because I read it for a literature class in college, and I read a few summaries of it while trying to find a PDF copy to refresh my memory for this episode. The first way people read it as, is as pure romance. Sasuke's admiration and respect for Shunkin is so powerful that he serves her all his life, marries her despite his lowly status, and makes sure his gravestone is beside hers, and shorter. When someone suggests he loves her out of pity, he denies it vehemently, saying normal people without her musical gifts are the real handicapped ones. Most summaries of the story sound like Romeo and Juliet, the story of unlikely lovers, focused on Sasuke's endless devotion to Shunkin. Some people actually hate the character of Shunkin because she seems spoiled and ungrateful for the wonderful things Sasuke does for her, turning him into a servant husband who calls her teacher rather than beloved. Imagine if Juliet was passive-aggressive towards Romeo throughout the play, a little bit like Buttercup in The Princess Bride, bossing Wesley around because she likes to see him do things for her. The second way to read A Portrait of Shunkin is a bit darker. It speculates this story, told mostly about Sasuke, is really a tragedy for the lady involved. From the moment he sees her, Sasuke is obsessed. He is assigned to be her servant, against her wishes. They get married largely because no one else would be willing to wed a blind woman. For the rest of her life, Shunkin is showered with praise, placed on a pedestal, and forced to be his lady. At one point, the text mentions that Sasuke didn't like hearing Shunkin laugh, the narrator coming to the ridiculous conclusion that it was because blind people laughing is a bit unsettling, despite the fact that a page earlier, Sasuke made it clear that Shunkin's blindness did not bother him in the least, simply adding to her mystique. Near the end of the story, Shunkin is burned and scarred, and Sasuke makes the decision to prick his own eyes with a needle, blinding himself. In some ways, this is very Romeo and Juliet sort of thing to do. One lover joins the other in their sad state of affairs. After all, Shunkin asked Sasuke not to look at her ruined face. However, these moments appear repeatedly throughout the story, and it seems like Sasuke is unable to think of Shunkin as a real person, though that doesn't always seem to be what she wants. He does not accept her new face. He prevents himself from seeing anything that would ruin the image of her in his mind. He does not treat her as a wife, but as a goddess and a prophet. And Shunkin really has no choice but to become swept up in his obsession. Who else would have her? Who else would care for her? Who else would stay with her after being blinded and burned? She doesn't really have a choice. Sasuke and Shunkin had four children, but Sasuke chose not to raise them himself, sending them away. They could not compare with the perfection of his lady. Shunkin died of a sickness in her 50s, and Sasuke died on the anniversary of her death in his 80s. The narrator tells of how the priest of the temple saw Sasuke as a sort of Zen saint for changing his life for his love, quote, turning the ugly into the beautiful, unquote. And the narrator ends with this line. I wonder how many of us would agree with him. In short, I believe that the author's intention was to write a story much like Romeo and Juliet. I mean that very literally, since some people speculate that Shakespeare wrote his story as a dark comedy. Shakespeare's famous love story is at once powerful, showing how the family's feud is pointless and harmful, as well as nothing but a teenage melodrama. The title characters are very, very young to be dying for each other within a week of meeting, proclaiming everlasting love immediately this point is emphasized by the fact that Romeo starts the play off by lamenting how another girl, Rosalind, doesn't love him back and his heart is broken. The moment he sees Juliet, he forgets about Rosalind. As soon as his feelings are reciprocated, it's everlasting love. I'm not saying you can't enjoy these star-crossed lovers. Just take the story with a grain of salt. The same is true for A Portrait of Shinkin. Yes, at first it seems incredibly sweet that this servant loves his mistress so much her father lets them marry, but his actions suggest that his everlasting love is more for the idea of this perfect person than the real woman herself. At a time when women had limited freedom as a whole, and were entirely reliant on aid if they were handicapped, the simple fact that Sasuke is a man gives him the advantage here despite being born a servant. His Romeo-style acts of self-sacrifice entombing himself with her are so over the top. It's telling that his outpourings of affection become even more intense after he blinds himself and can't see her anymore when her beauty exists only in his mind's eye. At the same time, Shunkin has undergone major trauma by being scarred. She was a spoiled child who was blinded, married to a servant, and lived out her final years as an ugly but talented musician. Her pride crushed over and over again without anyone to see her for who she truly is. While suffering, she had to live with the fact that Sasuke's masochism took precedence over everything else. He preferred to keep himself far below her, even insisting their servants call him by name rather than master, as would be appropriate. Is this a sign of humility and friendliness, or an uncomfortable shirking of rank in favor of placing himself beneath Shunkin's foot? When she no longer presses down on him, he invents ways to lower himself again. Ever her subordinate student and caregiver... Never her friend, contemporary, or equal. Honestly, I could go on about this story for ages, but it's not really the right genre for this podcast. If you have a little patience for literature, I'd recommend giving it a read. I'd be curious to hear your opinions about it in the YouTube comments. The reason I spent this much time talking about A Portrait of Shunkin is to explain my dislike for the way Jeff places women on a pedestal. The book spends a while discussing Terry's crime, but only touches on Jeff's strange attitude, so I thought I'd explore it here. I think Gilman would agree with me, since narrator Van also seems disturbed at several points, and not just because Jeff fully integrates into her land society. You might think that creating a culture of respect towards women would pick them up and hold them out of men's clutches, liberating them, but the opposite is usually true. Is chivalry dead, you might ask? But treating women as delicate or incapable or childlike is harmful to society as a whole. It pressures men to be the strongest member of the household and to pay for dinners. It re-emphasizes that women are not respectable, intelligent, autonomous adults. Even cultures with religions featuring extremely powerful women tend to have very tidy ideas about how women should act in everyday life. Men who open doors for women are just as likely, if not more so, to get upset when that same woman neglects to show him gratitude. The offense is not just about common courtesy, it's about the give and take, the social transactions that separate men from women. This rigid structure also creates fear of the unknown, such as discomfort around gay people, transgender people, non-binary people, and drag queens who don't fit into these neat social transactions. So, in a world where women are entirely capable of running society all by themselves, should Jeff treat them like goddesses or like people, equal to himself in all ways? Again, there are two answers. On the one hand, you could say yes, as even Van notices how motherhood is something of a religion to these women. They're one guiding principle that they use to enhance the world around them. Each and every one of them is the Virgin Mary. On the other hand, they are still human. An amazing thing happened to them that allowed for births without men, but the point Gilman was trying to make is that women would be able to create a society. The small fantasy or science fiction or supernatural element that is their virgin birth is mostly just an excuse for this country to exist in the story. These strong people wouldn't crumble and collapse under the weight of this responsibility when tasked with building a society. They were smart enough to develop math, science, architecture, and agriculture without men's help having started out as nothing but concubines and slaves. To say they are all goddesses would suggest that this is the only reason this country exists. That would mean these women are special, but women in general are not. This touches on something I find annoying in a lot of fantasy and superhero media. More often than not, it seems like female heroes are born out of some sort of birthright, rather than their own merit. For example, in the Marvel Universe, Black Widow was raised to be an assassin, Captain Marvel was born with dormant power, Scarlet Witch is a natural sorceress, or experimented on, the Wasp is the daughter of a great scientist, Gamora is the daughter of a great tyrant, Shuri is the daughter and of a great king, and so on. This isn't true for every female hero, and it can be true of male characters as well, but there is a trend. Shout out to Christine from the Doctor Strange movies for being an overlooked genius. Even in comedy films like Kick-Ass and Mystery Men, the girls are the daughters of strong men and inherited their skills and weapons. I've seen this in action films too, like the latest Bond flick No Time to Die. Deviations and exceptions like Alien, Edge of Tomorrow, and Kill Bill are very welcome. I also see this trend in anime. In One Punch Man, the female characters tend to be psychics who don't have to work for their power. In Demon Slayer, Nezuko is basically a Pokémon. It just feels like there's a slight disconnect, as if the male characters really have to work for their powers, volunteer to be super soldiers, to be worthy of the hammer, to develop a supersuit, practice with the ant suit, practice with the web shooters, control your anger, and so on and so forth. A lot of the time, the female character's most important role is saving the main hero once, then becoming his sidekick and lover. I like to see female heroes who start from scratch and build their way up, like the journey America Chavez takes at the end of Multiverse of Madness. I know that giving a character enormous talent is supposed to be a compliment, but they're more human and relatable if they have to work hard like the boys, get punched in the face a few times, etc. I remember when I was in college uh, that there was this video game discussion going around about how guys didn't understand why their girlfriends didn't want to play as healing characters. They thought they were trusting their girlfriends with their lives by asking them to be there as the healer, but really they weren't trusting them to fight alongside them as equals. Anyway, does Gilman's book have any real basis in reality? Is this what a world of women would look like? Like utopia? Charles Darwin himself wrote about sexual selection and how the females of a species often drive the propagation of certain traits, resulting in birds with ridiculous plumage meant to impress, not to be purely practical for survival. In many cases, the female of a species is as powerful or more so than her male counterparts. Well, despite being a country of women, Herland is more like a country of female-bodied, non-binary, asexual, parent-minded people who have devoted themselves to making a wonderful world for their children. I love reading about the theory of education in Chapter 9, how every child has a curriculum designed for them, how the community works together to raise children so every person can continue to work while also enjoying time with their babies. I honestly think this book is a fantastic read for new parents who want to consider how they treat their children, what opportunities they give based on sex alone. Like I mentioned during the introduction, Gilman's book doesn't completely throw out the structure and parental pride, merely re-examining the way people can be quite selfish about it, or overly dependent, or just unsupported. There isn't a household culture in Herland because the entire country is considered home and all the citizens are each other's family of sisters. Everyone is vegetarian, everyone feels useful, everyone is healthy from athletic exercise, good food, and invigorating hot cocoa. As we move forward into the future with ever more equality and understanding between the sexes, books like this will become ever more important. What do children grow up to be like if they're not constantly trying to draw attention from the opposite sex, compete with each other, or doubt themselves? It's really wonderful to imagine. (laughs) As a woman myself, I've learned to only take up a certain amount of space if I want to be taken seriously and don't want to stand out. And the thought of young women climbing trees, filling their pockets, laughing at invaders, looking people straight in the eye, and being able to go into any profession they choose is a really powerful thing. I remember watching RuPaul's show, AJ and the Queen. Spoiler alert, the little boy that main character ends up taking care of is actually a young girl dressed up as a boy to stay safer while on her own. It warmed my heart watching that little actress shout and take up space because everyone assumed she had a penis. Also, if you're interested in speculative storytelling about a world where women are on top, more like how Amazons of Greek mythology ruled over their husbands, I highly recommend the French film I Am Not an Easy Man. It provides a really interesting portrayal of the experiences of the sexes flipped on their heads. Wow, even a small book like this produces a script that's a full 40 pages. Can you believe it? make sure to leave a comment on YouTube or Instagram to let me know what you thought about this female utopia or any utopia. (laughs) And let me know your guess for what book I'll cover for the weird cover episode next. (laughs) Subscribe and click the bell for notifications on YouTube, as well as bonus episodes. Then go vote for equality and planetary health. Until next time, bye-bye, earthlings.